Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. It's the New Books and Literary Studies podcast. I'm your host, Phil Pudovine, and today I'm joined by Emily Trashenko. Dr. Trashenko is a research associate at the University of Oxford in the Faculty of Medieval and Modern Languages. Her first monograph is Kafka's Cognitive Realism, which is a kind of reevaluation of Kafka according to modern cognitive science. That's the book we're going to be talking about today. Very happy it's brought Emily to the show. Emily, thanks for being on. Thank you for the invitation. Um, all right. So I just wanted to quote you from the introduction to get a sense for what a cognitive realism might be. Um, you write, this study will proceed from the assumption that what a literary work is can be best understood by investigating what it does. So um, this seems to be where you could begin to leverage the real cause and effect of the cognitive sciences to understand how and what literature is actually doing. So um, I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about that, how you bring a scientific method to something that's historically been more abstract, less empirically observable, I guess. Mm. So, so I guess what I was getting at with that distinction between being and doing partly arises from the, the tradition in literary studies of, of trying to come up with interpretations of text. So statements essentially mm-hmm. about what texts mean, um, but without necessarily much awareness of or indeed interest in how we get to making those statements in the first place. Um, so what what the nature is of the, the kinds of interactions that are happening between the text and the reader. Um, so that means that you, you'll typically find statements being made as though they were, they had have some kind of um, universal relevance, like the text means this. Um, but eliding the idea that actually this was a this was a very private individual reading experience that led to this conclusion, and you know talking mm-hmm. about the reader instead of well I, <laughs> um, uh, all kinds mm-hmm. of little little um, tropes like that that you you start to pick up when you when you begin to take another perspective and ask okay um, what is it about this aspect of the text that's making me respond in this way or what is it indeed about um, some aspect of my life history or uh, what I'm doing now that's making me respond like this. Um, so once you start to ask those kind of questions, then all kinds of new methods open up to you. Um, and I guess mm-hmm. the, the cognitive literary studies at the moment, at least the empirical branch of, of that area, is, is gradually trying out all kinds of methods that are more and less viable. I mean, they're essentially to two kinds of thing that you can do if you want to investigate stuff like this empirically. One, you can ask people about their experiences or two, you can try and get at the nature of their experience or their processing of the text in some more indirect way. Um, obviously, both have drawbacks. So with the first method, you have to rely on people's introspective abilities and you know people aren't always um, able to, they're not always aware and or able to articulate everything about their experience or um, or what fed into that experience um, but then on the other side if you're doing things like eye tracking or measuring reading times or other 
physiological measures or of course brain imaging which is is getting hugely trendy in this area too um you're you're not actually measuring you're measuring something else and the relation between that something else and what you're actually interested in may be quite hard to pin down um and of course you start intruding into the reading experience more and more then so if you've got people hooked up to an eye tracker or obviously seeing in an fmri scanner Mm -hmm. and then start to change quite significantly so there's all kinds of, of um empirical challenges but i guess the the point is that you're able to as you say start to disentangle cause and effect a bit um and say uh if you take a whole bunch of readers and you've got a textual feature of a particular kind it's on average likely that it will have this kind of effect and that's that's really interesting if we're if we're curious in general about you know what makes us read fiction in the first place mm-hmm uh, so from what I'm hearing, it sounds like you're, we're trying to, in the, in that area of cognitive literary studies, it seems like you're trying to generalize the reader from an actual sample of, of living, uh, actual, like actual readers, uh, that you're, that you're, I guess, treating, um, their responses, their introspection, not so much as, uh, the actual interpretation, the final universal meaning of it, but more like as data a little bit. Does that sound correct? Mm, yeah yeah obviously humanities people often hate the word data and they'll talk mm-hmm. about reductionism as a sort of dirty word and um i think it's i think data are great because they can help us move towards conclusions that are that are more robust than simply a hypothesis that i might come up with based on my own single reading experience um mm. it's important not to be too um too broad brushed about it too though i mean um some of the some of the earlier experiments and indeed experiments happening now um very much flatten out all kinds of individual variation between um reading participants and um and also can have slightly problematic assumptions about some kind of blank slate reader or some some kind of you know um standard uh non-expert reader who mm-hmm. will have certain qualities um and and also perhaps make assumptions about that that blank slate reader being in some way more reliable than a, a literary critic who spent their whole life learning how to read really well and obviously that that doesn't go down too well with with more traditional um literary scholars who who feel that that expertise does have a value and of course it does so it's it's difficult to get the balance right between um, between valuing and um, and and taking seriously individual you know singular reading experiences and also saying well let's put this in context let's let's explore the the commonalities between people as well as the the differences I guess that's something that for me has often been quite frustrating about humanities research is that there's so much more emphasis on on the specialness of of individual readings um to the complete exclusion mm-hmm. of of stuff that we do share as human beings there's a lot more that's similar about us than than what differs between us and it's nice to try and uh, come to a better understanding of, of that stuff too i think yeah that, i mean that makes a lot of sense and especially given um i mean the methods that the principles that you're trying to bring to bear on 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 like the problems of um, of literary interpretation. So, I uh, 
just just trying to draw conclusions based on based on actual reader responses. Um, I, I did notice that you had two empirical studies in your appendices. I was curious, maybe how how you personally have been approaching that that challenge of of understanding what we have in common. Yeah, it's certainly been a challenge. <laughs> um, uh, both the the experiments that I refer to in in this book were, well, particularly the first one was um, a hugely steep learning curve for me, and um, it, so the the first experiment was one that I carried out during my, my PhD. Um, I had all kinds of advice from uh, very knowledgeable and well-meaning psychologists who told me to do something completely different and much simpler. And I ignored mm-hmm. all and went ahead with my completely overambitious. Uh, uh, it was a way of, of trying to get away from the standard kind of psychology rating scales and very predetermined um, formats for people to respond in. I wanted to, I suppose, allow allow people to um, to say whatever came up when they were reading mm-hmm. a bit of Kafka, rather than ask them about things that I thought I was interested in. Um, and, right, yeah, and I mean, your initial definition of realism comes from, I think, a, a reader response. You you ask someone to define realism, and that's kind of how you uh, opened up the discussion on on what is real, what is realism. Um, so I, uh, I guess to get back to the book or the the gist of the main gist of the book, uh, the focus um, when trying to understand uh, cognition in Kafka's writing is is on visual perception in particular. So I guess I kind of wanted to ask you a bit about um, why vision and and um, how did you how did you come to how did vision become the important uh, aspect of cognition you were you were going to focus on. Well, um, I'd I'd written a proposal for my doctorate that uh, was very properly mainstream literary criticism. It was it was all about representation of space in modernism, and I I you know it made sense and was a kind of interesting-ish question, I suppose, but not really for me. And I I got very cold feet about it just before I started the PhD and. Um, mm-hmm. And talked to my parents, who were both psychologists, and they said in the typical scientist way, well, what's the question you're really trying to answer? Is there one? Because if there isn't, maybe you shouldn't <laughs> go ahead and do three or four years of um, very intensive, lonely scholarship. Um, and mm. I realized that I did have a question, and it was, why is Kafka's writing so brilliant? Why, why do I still want to read it all this time after it was written? And um, what makes mm. it so powerful? Uh, and... I guess, I mean, my, my intuitions about space hadn't been entirely wrong. I think there is there is something strange going on with space in Kafka, but actually I, I gradually realised that it's less space and it's more about how we perceive space. Um, and mm. vision is a huge part of that. Of course, it's not the only part. And um, people quite rightly get annoyed when, when vision is, um, as it often is, prioritize over all the other senses and um treated as the only one that kind of matters um it clearly isn't mm-hmm. but it is it is a very a very dominant sense in human cognition and um it's responsible for a, a lot of the uh the characteristics of how we how we experience the world around us and i think kafka is doing some really interesting things specifically with the representation of uh of vision and 
and its uh, imaginative corollary, um, mental imagery or vision-like imagining. Yeah, there's a really interesting parallel drawn between um, visual perception and and imagine, imagined uh, perception or percepts that are things you're perceiving that are totally imaginary. So um, I guess a big part of, um, I, for me, the, one, the thing that struck me reading this was that um, something could be real or could affect us as real um, only because we we perceive it that way like um we would have like a like a the reaction towards something frightening in kafka um in the same way that we would react to something really actually physically um frightening so it seems like there's uh the study is is sort of getting into there's there's a certain level of cognition um where our visual systems are are like really seeing the the fiction, even though it's just symbols on a page, we're we're having a reaction to something as if it was real. So, um, I was wondering if you could go into uh, go into that and 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 how um, or whether or not there is a point after which uh, an imaginary person, place, or phenomenon is indistinguishable from a from an actually perceived one, at least to to a certain part of our mind. Mm. Yeah, I think, I guess this was the, the idea that I was trying to sort of feel my way around in coining the term, well, if I did coin it, I, I guess some people have used it before, but uh, what I mean by cognitive realism is is this um, correspondence that can be created between um, how aspects of perception are depicted in a text and how they um, are understood to act in the real world. Um, so I think Kafka is doing that, is creating that kind of correspondence really quite with quite interesting precision a lot of the time. And, um, we see this in, particularly in, in the the evocation of, of how vision works. I think that, um, Mm -hmm. things are represented in a way that corresponds not to how we normally think of vision as working. But perhaps if if the theories which I'm which I've summarized and um, to some extent relying on are correct, um, co- corresponds with how it actually works. Um, so we sort of get past the the folk psychology and we we get to to some really um, deep rooted uh, alignment between the what's given in the text and how our minds work. Um, and that isn't complete. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't want to say that he. Um, you know, is systematically just prefiguring a whole load of cognitive scientific discoveries or anything. But there, there are interesting um, parallels that uh, that I think are part, at least partly responsible for that odd kind of potency that his language has. Um, mm. So I um so sorry. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was reading and I was really surprised to read that language is processed. You, you write language is processed by both the perceptual and the motor system. So it's, I mean, the part of you that's in charge of, of moving you, like your response is, is as physical as your motor system, which I think is, is fascinating. Um, I guess maybe to get at the question a little more precisely, I, I guess I should ask, um, like what's going on in a reader's head when they're really engaged with something like Kafka, for example, and, and where does that begin to differ from uh, the folk psychology or the folk assumption about um, about how vision works and and how imaginary how imagination works 
in that way or visually? Um, yeah, so you've obviously got a whole mass of complicated stuff going on. So at the at the kind of lowest level, you've got all the, the eye movements that are um, uh, serving to take in the visual stimuli, the stuff on the page, decode the letters, then do all the sort of semantic comprehension. Um, and there'll probably be feedback loops between the, the basic text processing and the comprehension processing, um, comprehension side of, of the processing. Um, and then building on top of that, then you have um, uh, the stuff that's about engaging with the content of what you're reading. Um, so you'll have mm-hmm. a kind of emotional appraisals in response to the characters. You'll have um, some kind of mind reading or, you know, theory of mind type response. So uh, either making inferences about characters um, states of mind or or in some more direct sense um, perceiving those states um, and as you say you'll have all the motor stuff so you'll have low level physiological um, responses to all kinds of uh, uh, descriptions of actions and um, uh, settings where certain actions are likely to occur um, and and part of that that motor response is the uh, it is the perceptual response um, that we've started talking about. So um, I guess the the, the standard um, folk psychological and sort of basic um, early scientific model of how vision works is that uh, you move your eyes around the scene, you take in visual information, travels up the optic nerve into the brain where it's it's processed and, uh, and successively with... Um, with more and more eye movements, you put together a some kind of mental or neural representation of the scene, and that's what allows you to see the stuff that you're looking at. Um, so this this kind of seems to make sense as far as it goes, but when you start to uh, ask ask how that mental representation actually allows us to have the experience of seeing something, it gets a bit more tricky because what is what is the nature of that neural representation? There's, there's, there's good candidates. So um, uh, primary visual cortex, for example, is known to um, represent uh, the current stimuli in a retinotopic fashion, i.e. Uh, corresponding to the, uh, the patterns of stimulation on the retina. Um, hmm. So you can, you can kind of decode backwards from looking at, at V1 to what you were seeing. But even if you can do that, there's there's all kinds of distortions and of course nothing's in 3D, nothing's in colour. Um, you're not explaining a whole lot of stuff and you're certainly not explaining why that should give rise to some kind of experience at all. Um, mm. You're also probably relying on some kind of little, um, uh, some kind of homunculus, some kind of um, metacognitive agent who who looks at the uh, that neural display, reads the stuff off it and then... Mm. You know, uses it to, to know what's being seen. So then you're then you're um, in a position where you have to explain how that homunculus is functioning. Um, and this this kind of model is still very much um, uh, present in in current scientific theories. People will actually talk about in scare quotes, but but seriously, like the mind's eye function and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have you have this huge uh, lot of unexplained stuff, and you have what what Dave Chalmers called the hard problem, the problem of why uh, physical processing should give rise to subjective experience at all. Um, mm-hmm. So that's very, 
that's very um, acutely posed by that type of model of perception. And so mm-hmm. uh, alternative models have been proposed that say, in fact, seeing doesn't rely on building up an internal representation of what is being seen. You don't need to do that. These kind of theories, inactive theories or sensory motor theories say, because, well, it's all out there in the world for you to look at when you need to. So why would the brain bother to put together a a very um, computationally costly representation? It doesn't need to. Um, So instead, Mm. the idea in in this kind of theory, and it varies between um, kind of sub-theories, but... Uh, the basic idea that is that seeing is is more about interacting with your environment. So it's it's interacting with your surroundings with mastery of the relevant laws of sensory motor contingency, or in ordinary language, mm-hmm. um, with a knowledge of what would change if I were to move in a certain way, or the object that I'm looking at were to move. A very low level, detailed um, knowledge of those those contingent interactions when it comes to reflectance and. Um, and contrast and um, uh, and size and perspective and so on um, built up over a lifetime of, of perceiving stuff. Um, so, sure, sure. So that's that's kind of that's the alternative and active model of perception, and that's the one that I think Kafka is is tapping into really quite directly. By I, I think it's it's really it's really striking once you start to think about it this way because he so often just doesn't give you nearly as much detail as you were probably expecting in descriptions mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, and often I think you don't really notice that until you start looking for it, because it, you read it really easily and it, it, you, know, you just flow through it so naturally. But there, is, there are a huge number of gaps, and, and gappiness is one of the, um, the main uh, perceptual characteristics that theories like inactivism try to uh, try to account for you know we mm. like to think that we have a, a hugely detailed model of the world available to us at any point but we really don't um, and popular demonstrations to things like change blindness um, or an inattentional blindness with the gorilla who walks through the, uh, the basketball game um, uh, these things show that we you know we can just miss huge things right in front of us all the time and um, mm-hmm. And that our, our grasp on our surroundings is much is much more precarious than we might like to think. So I think Kafka's playing with that and and using it to unsettle us, um, but also drawing us in because it really does it does correspond to how we uh, we engage perceptually with with real environments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you uh, when you started when you began to define the term Kafkaesque, or at least what's called Kafkaesque, if, if it's not a real um quality in Kafka's writing is um as something that's both compelling and uh unsettling. So it seems like you're trying to better understand something that some aspects of visual perception that that might be more precarious than we we might um think of or assume um so I I want to kind of get into how you apply these ideas to some actual Kafka, some actual um bits of Kafka's writing. I uh in chapter 3 after having built up these ideas and having um sort of begun to establish your position uh, in like the inactivist camp, I guess, or with the sensory motor uh, theory of visual perception. Um, We get into like a really interesting analysis of the opening of Der Process or the trial. Um, So, or was that, is that the right name? Mm, Yeah. I remember it's Der Process. Um, So, I mean, you begin to say, you say that uh, the immediate environment exists only insofar as K, the, the main character, K interacts with it. But, 
Um, what little we know about it is perfectly adequate, perhaps because simply mentioning a movement or action creates the greater effect of a greater effect of cognitive verisimilitude. Um, it's it seems to me it's it's like when you talk about gappiness, it's like the spaces in between frames of a film where and and our brain is just sort of uh, filling in the rest and and making it contiguous and and um, and sort and making objects seem permanent in their movements. So um, I was hoping you could go a little further into um, how Kafka is, is I guess evoking uh, an imaginary perception that seems um, that seems real and, and just how, and in just what ways um, it's real given the inactivist account of, of uh, perception and, um, and that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, well, that passage that you talk about is is probably my favourite bit of Kafka, and mm. I think it's just it is remarkable how little it says, and yet, uh, at least for me, and I think for many other people that I've talked to, how little you miss all the detail that you might normally expect. Um, mm. So, you know, you really don't know anything about about where the protagonist K is is waking up um, until you learn that he sees something from his pillow. Um, and so you can infer that he's in bed and then it says there's a knock. So you kind of infer that he's in a room with a door and, um, and, you know, it, it proceeds like that very much from just very minimal hints um, to create something that, that just works, that you just, that you just kind of take for granted and whether you do fill in all the gaps or not, I'm not sure. I think this is part of the, um, this is one of the, uh, the entailments of, of the inactivist theory is that there will be lots of gaps and you may not even need feel the need to fill them. Um, it may just not be necessary. So this is, mm. this is, I think one of the things that makes, makes the reading process flow in a slightly different way from, um, you know, perhaps a more traditional 19th century realist text where you would have a long description of the room before something happened in it. Um, Cause you don't have mm. to pause to have the, the visual description and then get on with the action because it's actually the action that is giving you the description. All, all that you need of the description is there in the stuff that the protagonist does or doesn't do. Um, mm. So you, and then, and then the world of, of the trial sort of gradually expands in that way, just giving you very little, um, gradually uh, bringing in hints of other places that there are usually also through action. Um, mm. And then starts to sort of give us, give us hints of of the ways in which perception works if it's not conceived of in this pictorialist way. Um, so if it's not about building up mental pictures, but about something more, more action bound. So there'll be moments, moments where, for example, um, you just come into a room and it's all there just all at once without you having mm. to, to do some kind of um, cumulative building up of the picture of the room. Um, so he walks into some ultra crowded sitting room and, and it's just as if he could have seen all the detail already, even though he, he couldn't possibly have, because he's only probably had time for a very few eye movements. Uh, and so you get you get sort of again um, little challenges to that that usual way of thinking about um, vision. Um, mm. And then you have starts uh, little ways that uh, vision starts to merge with imagination more. Um, things start to feel a bit weird and not quite make sense. And um, 
for example, the, the famous um, lumber room scene where he at work walks into a room where um, one of his colleagues is being beaten by another. Um, and it's not clear whether this is entirely real or not. And um, in a way, it's just a normal room on this normal corridor. But then uh, he comes back, he closes the door and sort of the screams are muffled. And then he comes back again and finds that, uh, in fact, nothing has changed from when he was last there. And so you get this horrible sense that actually maybe it's just some sort of figment of his imagination. Um, and and it becomes very, the, the kinds of indeterminacy that you get in the descriptions of that room and the kinds of ways in which his actions do or don't affect the the room itself become, uh, you become more acutely aware of, of those things and, and of, of the ambiguities that they create because we, we just can't completely be sure of the boundaries between the scene and the imagined anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you have a, uh, if you have something that seems so real when it begins to get weird or it gets to become um, when it begins to move in into those, those spaces or into those situations that could only exist in a fiction then. And once you've already been sucked into the realism of it, it, it must be, that must be very disconcerting. Um, so that is very cool, um, and that's kind of the big, ch- uh, the big picture. Take if you forgive the expression um, that I'm getting from uh, from Ka- what's cool about Kafka. Maybe what the answer to your question is, at least for me, is that um, Kafka is sort of brilliant in that he can he can make you feel like you're actually in a place that that you've never been to and that doesn't actually exist, and that fantastic things can happen. And um, so I, uh, well, keep I kind of want to. Very normal as well. I mean, it, right, right. The weirdness just creeps up on you, I think, rather than being, you know, it's not surreal from the outset. It's it just gradually takes over. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, I kind of got through the main body of my questions, but I have a couple of tangential questions that I kind of wanted to to throw at you and see see how you respond to them. Uh, they're not really about what you wrote about, but they sort of apply. So, um, I uh. It, the whole idea of something that can exist only in effect or, or virtually um, that's super interesting to me. And, and um, so that's something that could be qualified as existent only because it makes you feel like it is uh, sort of, I, I wonder um, as virtual reality VR is becoming more and more um, culturally relevant is becoming more part of our media and entertainment. I, I wonder if you think there's, and an activist take a Kafka esque take on on um, cinematic VR. Is there? Do you do you see? Um, is that something you've ever thought about? Do you think that just in terms of a director of a film, if you're directing an audience's attention in in a in a in a virtual uh, experience, in the same way that Kafka's writing is a virtual experience, do you think that there's? Um, there's opportunity to to explore that kind of aesthetic effect on people. Um, do you see that as being an object of cognitive literary studies? Do you think that there's any applications of of your own conclusions, your own thinking on on that kind of uh, interaction of, of text and mind? If we think of um, we think of the virtual experience as a text. Mm, gosh, lots of questions. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I don't know a huge amount about. Um, virtual reality stuff but i guess i guess one of the obvious um points of connection is 
is this idea about uh, about expectation and um, and how much you need to be given in order to draw certain conclusions about uh, your environment, say. Um, so there's lots of lots of evidence about the extent to which you know what we expect to see uh, drives what we do see. Um, so mm. all the change blindness stuff that I mentioned, but also um, in a more general sense, the idea of uh, something that's becoming very um, very exciting and, and fashionable in cognitive science at the moment, predictive coding or or Bayesian um, theories of uh, of cognition. Um, people like the philosopher Andy Clark, for example, are um, saying this is going to just revolutionise cognitive science. It's, it's all about um, the idea that what the mind is doing is trying to account for the incoming sensory data by matching it with some kind of top-down uh, prediction. And the idea is mm. to minimize the prediction error. Uh, so the, so in, that, in that kind of model, the, the actual incoming data is only significant if it proves your prior prediction wrong and forces you to re- revise your model. Otherwise, it doesn't mm. necessarily matter hugely what the incoming stuff is. If it corresponds to your model, then you, it's, almost, uh, it's almost redundant. Um, mm. So I think maybe that kind of idea and and the thoughts about inactivism that we've talked about um, give you a way of thinking about uh, the construction of, of virtual environments in, in a slightly different and a slightly more parsimonious way, I guess, because um, you're not having to just like, just like Kafka is kind of getting away from this very long entrenched um, idea in poetics that creating a vivid uh, reading experience requires you to paint a, a verbal picture um, mm-hmm. You can get away from that idea maybe in 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 other media as well, and um, actually give people rather little, give people these hints, give people all the gaffiness, and see what they do with it, and whether they even notice it. Um, I think you're getting you're you're seeing some of that applied to um, in artificial intelligence contexts. You know, people trying out these these less um, representationless models of perception, seeing whether they work better in uh, in robots, um, and they seem to it seems to get around a lot of the, um, the problems of like computational demands and, and actually work quite well. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, there's, there's lots of interesting stuff that could be done there. I don't know how much cognitive literary studies will contribute, but I hope it will get involved in all kinds of exciting stuff like that because I guess this is one of the main, the main excitements for me of doing cognitive as opposed to other kinds of, of literary work is that, you can really feel that you're in a dialogue with a whole lot of other burgeoning, fast-moving fields rather than in sort of um, a bit of a backwater, which it felt to me as an undergraduate that, that the field mm-hmm. was. Um, and not that we should, I think people people who are more perhaps traditionalists in thinking about these things perhaps worry that, you know, if we're, if we're entering into a dialogue with the cognitive sciences, well, we're just going to be the sort of, poor sister who has nothing to contribute i absolutely don't think that's the case and i um mm. though although this book is is primarily taking scientific insights and seeing what can they say about kafka i'm more and more interested in in how we can say stuff back and how we can you know adapt empirical methodologies to work well for telling us about literary reading yes but also then by extension about how minds work in general um and mm-hmm. just contributing to those debates in a very um uh equal and two-way fashion i think that's that's what i really hope that 
cognitive literary science or whatever you want to call it will will end up doing. So yeah, mm. virtual reality definitely, if we can, that would be excellent. <laughs> yeah, I okay. I, I just have one last question for you. Um, you write uh, that this investigation is really uh, only in the early stages. And so that m- many questions have to remain just questions, uh, or at least they might, might become better defined questions. I, I'm wondering, um, this book was published in February of 2014. I, I'm wondering what's occupying you now um, in your work, in your, in your research, and um, what, are you, what are you working on now? Um, yeah, I guess I've, I've gone a little bit further down the route of thinking about differences between readers. So um, I have a long-standing interest in, in mental health from um, my own experience, past experience, and writing a blog about eating disorders. And I've now mm. just started to put that, those interests together with my, my literary stuff. Um, I collaborated with an eating disorders charity, Beach, last year, um, starting to investigate the connections between people's reading habits and their mental health. Um, and got got some really fascinating stuff out of, of the survey that we conducted, and um, I'm just starting to design empirical work that will um, start to again you know, get at the the potential causal mechanisms, both mechanisms of um, of therapeutic benefit and potentially um, harm as well. Uh, I think there's a, a huge amount to be learnt there, and and lots of assumptions about you know. Um, how literature must be good for us in certain ways, but these assumptions are not very often <laughs> rigorously tested. So it will be interesting to to do that. Um, and that's yeah, that's that's actually becoming really satisfying and a really uh, a really nice way of linking uh, interests of mine that have been quite distinct until this point. Um, so I'm thinking about mind-body feedback obviously becomes very important in the context of disordered eating. Um, so I've just, just finished a, a paper on that, uh, thinking about how feedback, um, positive feedback loops in particular, can be thought of as quite important to, to reading in general, but also particularly reading when we uh, have mental health problems in the picture. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of where I'm going at the moment.